The coronavirus continues to spread and threatens global trade. The feds try to deport 50,000 illegal immigrants. Good luck with that. Plus, the woke left takes aim at the sport of hockey. And we'll talk conservative leadership race and this week in fake news. I'm Candace Malcolm, and this is The Candace Malcolm Show. Hi, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for tuning in. We have a lot to get to, a lot of news going on this week, so let's get right to it. So the first case of the coronavirus has been recorded that was transmitted through human contact. So an individual in Germany is the first known case of someone who contracted the virus through workplace. So he didn't visit China himself. He just interacted with someone at work who had recently visited Wuhan, China. So this is a 33-year-old man in Bavaria who contracted it during a workplace training event with a visiting Chinese colleague. He is now put under quarantine and observation at a Munich hospital. So really, like I said in the last program, this is more of a case of just hysteria over this sort of mysterious new virus that's quickly spreading. The major problem and concern with this kind of virus isn't so much the virus itself. You know, it's affecting very few people. So far, there have been 132 deaths. Uh, and 4,600 cases, which may seem like a lot, but remember, keep it in, in perspective, um, more people are impacted by the common flu or influenza every year. But the major concern with this is, well, there's, there's two. One is the infection rate. So the novel coronavirus case fatality rate is currently estimated around 3%, somewhere between 2 and 4%. So for comparison, the seasonal flu rate is less than 0.01%. Um, and if you can compare this with some of the other major uh, respiratory syndrome viruses that, that were occurring, the SARS, the SARS rate was 10%, and the MERS rate, the Middle Eastern Re uh, Respiratory Syndrome uh, rate was 30 and just for comparison, I wanted to put this into perspective. So according to the World Health Organization, on this is what they have to say on influenza. Uh, worldwide, these annual epidemics, this is talking about the common flu or influenza, are estimated to result in 3 to 5 million cases of severe illnesses annually, which result in somewhere between 290,000 and 650,000 respiratory deaths. So again, the coronavirus for all the hype and all the hysteria around it, it's, it's nothing compared to what happens every single year with the common flu. But again, the concern is over the idea that we just don't really know what's causing it at this point, what the origin was, and how to treat it. And, you know, the, the concern at this point has nothing to do with, you know, individuals catching, uh, being affected by this coronavirus. The, the, the biggest concern, you know, by far is how this will impact global trade. So already, you know, countries are reacting and, and, and you know, overreacting by uh, stopping, stopping trade, stopping anything that's coming from China. So uh, Ford and Toyota will both uh, idle their vast Chinese assembly plants for an extra week. Apple is rerouting its supply chains. Starbucks has closed thousands of stores and is warning of a financial blow. On Wednesday, British Airlines suspended all flights to mainland China, while United and Air Canada are joining the growing number of carriers reducing services. Japan's leaders are bracing for a possible hit. Hotel and tour operators across Asia are watching fearfully as the world's largest source of tourism dollars tightens its borders. This is all because of the mysterious pneumonia-like coronavirus that has killed more than 100 people and sickened thousands, virtually shut down one of the world's most important growth engines. Desperate to slow the fast-moving virus, the Chinese authorities have extended the country's national holiday to February 3rd, crippled land, rail, and air transport. 
Uh, entire cities have shut down. And, you know, even if you just look at the location of Wuhan, it's right on the Yangtze River, very close to Shanghai. This is a very important strategic location, not just for, you know, China itself, but for global trade. It's, it's, it's a huge port city um, that, that allows so much of what's manufactured for global trade um, to get to market, to get through the Yangtze out to Shanghai, where the global port uh, takes it to the rest of the world. So again, you know, the biggest fear at this point isn't so much with, you know, individuals contracting this virus, but it is how we react, how we tighten restrictions, um, stop trade, start tra stop travel, and you start to learn just how interconnected the global economy really is. So, so that's more of the fear for people watching the, the stock markets and worried about, you know, getting their products to market um, and going back to business as usual. All right, moving on. This was an exclusive in Blacklock's Reporter this morning. The feds count 52,109 deportees. According to the story, more than 50,000 illegal immigrants ordered removed from Canada remain in the country. This according to cabinet records. And so, you know, this is the major problem when you have so many people entering the country illegally, making that refugee claim. So they claim they ask for asylum uh, after it goes through Canadian courts. If, if a judge determines, no, you're not a refugee, the person gets ordered deported. The problem is at that point, they have the ability to appeal. The appeal process can take more than two years. And so as a result, you have all of these people who are just sort of like living in limbo in Canada. Some of them choose to sort of go dark, go on the lam and continue to live illegally outside the boundaries, outside the confines of our immigration system. Others just continue to sort of waste resources, waste taxpayer money by appealing and appealing and saying, oh, this is fair. Oh, I want to have another judge and stretching it out for as long as possible. You know, their immigration lawyers and consultants are, are urging them to do this and saying, you know, we can get past the law if you just continue to, to press. And because of it, you know, Canada has this huge problem with illegal immigration. And now it's Justin Trudeau's government that has to deal with it. I mean, 52,000 people who are supposed to be deported, just for comparison, a total of 648 illegal immigrants were deported last year. 648 people were deported. Meanwhile, there's 52,000 outstanding deportation orders. Again, this is the problem when you don't enforce the law in the first place, when you have a, an area like Roxham Road in rural Quebec, where thousands of people are just walking illegally across the border only to be intercepted by the RCMP and then transported to basically a taxpayer-funded all-expenses holiday where they're waiting for their case to be heard, all at the expense of the taxpayer. You know, and again, this is the problem with Trudeau's approach to immigration. Instead of stopping people in the first place from crossing illegally, he just continues to let it happen. He's made no effort whatsoever to stop that flow of illegal immigrants coming across the border at Roxham Road. Instead, he's only facilitated it by uh, stationing permanent presence of RCMP, creating these shuttle buses that take people to their choice, Montreal or Toronto, and then from there they get placed into hotels, uh, they get sort of the taxpayer-funded royal treatment, uh, like a holiday, probably the nicest holiday they've ever had in their lives, all courtesy of the taxpayer. Only, you know, a few years later, once they finally had their case heard, to be told, no, you're not a refugee. You don't meet any of the definitions, you don't meet any of the standards, you have to go. Well, again, this is all at the expense of the taxpayers. So we're now dealing with at least 52,000 deportees. That's just the ones that they have records of. I'm sure that there's many more that are just completely unaccounted for. And, you know, again, good luck trying to deport that many people when, you know, the total 
the total removals last year was 648. The previous year, it was 495. Uh, Canada's not very good at deporting people. We're not very good at handling illegal immigrants in our country, which is why it is better to just stop them from entering in the first place. If someone's coming into Canada illegally and you know that they're from a country that they have no chance of being determined to be an actual refugee. I mean, the fact that they're coming from the United States should be a pretty big red flag to begin with. They're already in a safe country and they're going to another safe country. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up. And this is an example of the Trudeau government just being absolutely horrible when it comes to enforcing our immigration laws and maintaining the rule of law, which again has a ripple effect because Canadians start to distrust the immigration system because of this surge of illegal immigration. It makes them doubt the entire immigration system, not just the ability to stop illegal immigrants, but the ability for the government to manage a large-scale immigration program. And that's why we've seen real skepticism towards Canada's immigration policies in the last couple of years. It's all because of Justin Trudeau. Okay, let's move on. This story just drives me absolutely crazy. So a hockey coach was removed for refusing to take a mandatory gender identity course. Taking a course on gender identity became mandatory for Hockey Eastern Ontario volunteers. This is an exclusive over at tnc.news. As the woke left comes for hockey, one Ontario man has found himself no longer permitted to coach because he refused to take a course on gender identity. So this individual did an interview with Colette Magazine, and the man said that he was formerly a volunteer with his son's hockey team, but he claimed he was no longer a volunteer because he just refused to take this course. I can't coach, I can't be on the bench, I can't help on the ice. Even just to help on the ice, you need to have this training, said the man who wishes to remain anonymous. Taking a course on gender identity became mandatory for Hockey Eastern Ontario volunteers following a 2017 legal settlement with a transgender hockey player who alleged discrimination. The former assistant coach said he is opposed to discrimination and that he was going to take the course until he saw the 33-slide module on gender. I would be fine taking an awareness course if it were actually, if it were factual and based on science, he said, but I felt this was too ideological. Included in the presentation was a claim that biological sex and gender are unrelated to one another, as well as detailed explanations of identities such as polygender, genderqueer, and agender. The presentation also alleged that the gender binary was invented by Europeans and imposed on the rest of the world through colonialism. Well, there you have it. According to hockey, according to just minor hockey, where, you know, everyday Canadians are playing, little kids are playing hockey, you have to believe in ideological far-left nonsense. The idea that biological sex is a social construct invented by Europeans, you know, this is, this is what it's saying. Biological sex is racist. That's basically what it's saying. And every single hockey coach in Ontario has to take this training. This is totally nonsense. Once again, the left is at war against everyday Canadians, against our way of life and the things we do. Going after hockey is their strategy because, you know, hockey is sort of like the most normal thing you can be into in Canada. It's something that so many of us are, you know, that that's that's what we're interested in. That's what we like. That's what we pay attention to. And, you know, by going after hockey, it hits at the heart of our culture and it really takes aim at sort of this central institution in our society. This is far from their first attempt to do this. We have seen sort of mainstream media and left-wing figures go after hockey. It started, of course, with Don Cherry and him being removed from Coach's Corner in Hockey Night in Canada for using what is supposedly, what, a discriminatory term saying, you people, encouraging all Canadians to wear the poppy. And then after he was removed, uh, his co-host Ron McLean just sort of went like full woke left and started lecturing 
telling us all about white privilege and and structural racism in hockey and blah blah blah. So again, this is just you know political correctness run amok and taking aim right at the heart of our culture and going after the sport of hockey. I hate to see that. All right, let's move on. So the conservative leadership race is beginning to take shape. We have you know the front runners again at this point are Peter McKay. And Aaron O'Toole, and unfortunately, already early in this race, the mainstream media is already shaping this debate. They're already trying to sort of paint all conservatives with the same brush as what they did on, during the election with Andrew Scheer. So the thing that everyone's talking about this week is who will and who won't march in pride parades, as if this is like the most important thing to know about a conservative candidate before they're selected. This is what the mainstream media care about. It's not what Canadians care about. And it certainly is not what conservative delegates who will be selecting their next leader care about. It's just a huge distraction designed to plant the seed in people's heads that conservatives are kind of bigoted and they kind of hate gay people. And so that's what they're, that's what the media is trying to do. If I were advising leadership uh, campaign or if I was, you know, working on a campaign, I would advise the candidates just not talk about this issue to just like, you know, the media is obsessed with it. Uh, good for them. They can kind of dwell on it. Conservatives should be talking about the important issues in Canada, talking about the economy, talking about debt levels, talking about how to sort of restore fiscal responsibility in the government. And if you want to talk about social and cultural issues, it should be a critique on the left-wing sort of mainstream media values and not allowing the mainstream media to attack and condemn social conservatives. But alas, this is not what's happening. So here we have Aaron O'Toole put out a statement saying that he will not march in the Pride Parade. And he writes, in uniform, I stood up for the rights of all Canadians. And in Parliament, I have always, always voted for liberty and equality as leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. I will march in Pride Parades. I will not participate in the Toronto Pride Parade. While its policies is to exclude Canadians, especially uniformed police officers, in my view, its regrettable position is incompatible with the principles of inclusivity and the equality of all Canadians. When Toronto Pride becomes a truly inclusive event, I will march in that with my uniformed friends. Okay, and so because of that, now we have stories like this up at CTV. McKay and Gladio will march in Toronto Pride. O'Toole will not. So Peter McKay and Marilyn Gladue have both committed to marching in the Toronto Pride Parade. Uh, while Aaron O'Toole says that he won't unless police are allowed to march in uniform again. This is allowing left-wing mainstream media to dictate the terms of the conservative leadership debate and dictate the conversation. It's not good for conservatives. I really don't understand why a conservative can't just say, look, I support gay marriage. I'm 100% not going to legislate on that. I'm not interested in legislating on gay marriage. However, I'm not going to take part in a pride parade because it's my freedom as a Canadian to not have to march in a parade and I don't feel like they're family-friendly events. That's it. That's it. I support gay marriage. I'll do other things in the community to show my support for the gay community, but I'm not going to march in a parade that's basically devoted towards sex and hedonism. That's not what I'm going to do. And instead, we have this like weird game where we play where it's almost become like a, a mandatory thing for not just conservative leaders, like not just all leaders, but conservative leaders. Everyone has to march in a parade. Look, last time I checked, we lived in a free society. Not everyone has to go to the same events. If you are, you know, 
on the political left, no one's saying, hey, you must go to a hockey game. You must go to a football game. You know, as, as a politician, you must participate in these certain, you know, cultural activities. You must go to church. You, you know, no, we live in a free society, so you can choose. Some people can choose to go to church on Sunday. Some people can choose to go to a pride parade. I mean, that's the whole idea of living in a free society and this idea that every single leader must participate in an event that is frankly pretty raunchy uh, doesn't add up. So, you know, I guess good for Aaron O'Toole, I guess, for pushing back a little bit and saying, hey, you guys are not very inclusive since you don't allow police officers to march in your parade. Um, but again, that doesn't really hit at the, the major issue for most Canadians, which is, you know, two things. One, not everyone's interested in going to a parade that's celebrating sex in that way. And two, you know, we live in a free society, so you can't force or coerce people to attend an event that they don't want to attend. That's just the reality. So no one, no, no, no one's really showing any courage so far in leadership race and showing a willingness to fight back against, you know, those two very principled issues. Okay, let's let's move on to fake news. Let's let's talk about this week in fake news because we have a lot of fake news going on right now. This this was not not exactly a news story, but it just shows the sort of crooked, corrupt relationship between the CBC, the Liberal Party, and the federal government, the Trudeau government. So. This is another exclusive over at Blacklock's Reporter. So the federal government paid a liberal CBC pundit five figures in order to provide media coaching for a single cabinet minister. So the feds paid $22,120 to an individual called Amanda Alvaro, who did not respond to questions. CBC ethics guidelines require disclosure, disclosure of special interests of any pundit, <laughs> quote, spoiler alert, guys, I'm a liberal, <laughs> Alvaro wrote on Twitter, her Twitter account. Basically, this woman, Alvaro, is a liberal talking head. She is a consultant and she runs her own company. And she's frequently a guest on CBC, basically just spouting out the liberal campaign talking points. She is a liberal, spoiler alert, she said she's liberal. So this woman is a partisan. She goes on the CBC to mimic Justin Trudeau's talking points. And then, of course, because this kind of stuff is just common place in, you know, the corrupt world of Ottawa politics, she gets paid by the federal government, not by the Liberal Party, but by the federal government using taxpayer dollars. She gets hired to come in and coach Marian Monsef, the Minister of Status of Women, on how to be a better, more media savvy communicator. So again, why is this something that Canadian taxpayers are paying for? How come a the Liberal government is allowed to hire Liberal pundits who also get paid by the CBC? It's all just really insider baseball-y. And it makes you realize, yeah, you know what? We have a pretty, uh, we have a pretty big swamp in Ottawa. It's not just a Washington, D.C. problem. We have a swamp in Ottawa as well. All right, next story I want to talk about is CBC has a analysis piece by Rosemary Barton. As you probably know, Rosemary Barton used to be the host of The National, but she got removed from that position. And she is now a political reporter, but for whatever reason, she writes opinion and analysis pieces as well in the CBC. So the latest from Rosemary Barton, she says, for conservative candidates who aren't fully bilingual, running to be prime minister won't be easy. It's hard to thrive in, in federal politics without being fluent in both languages and for good reason. 
Good luck, Mr. McKay, she said, mimicking the headline in the Journal de Quebec. The headline said, Good luck, Minister, because Peter McKay is not very good at speaking French. And to people in Ottawa and people in Quebec, this is just a huge scandal. Like, how dare someone try to be prime minister if they're not perfectly fluent in French? As I've talked about on this program and as I talked about in depth uh, in an interview that I did with J.J. McCullough for True North, uh, the idea for a conservative that you have to know how to speak French in order to be leader of the party is silly. It's a sort of liberal created uh, demand. It makes sense for the liberal party since their base is in Quebec and they have to win a lot of seats in Quebec in order to form government. If you go back and you look at the electoral record of conservatives, you'll know that they don't really win any seats in Quebec. They don't really want a good a good showing for the conservatives in Quebec is to win like five or six seats. That would be considered a good showing. So why why is the emphasis so much on how an individual for a party that basically has no hope of winning seats in Quebec? Why are they forced to speak French? All it does is sort of weed out good candidates. It um, shrinks the the playing field of people who might you know otherwise be good leaders and make a great leader of the conservative party. Well, of course you're going to have pundits on the CBC trying to pressure the conservatives because Rose Bright Barton is not a conservative. She hates the conservatives. She has no interest in ever having a conservative person become prime minister because she's pretty open in her views. She's definitely not on the political right. And so because of that, why is she giving advice and lecturing conservatives saying you must speak French? Well, I, I think that conservatives would be very well advised to completely ignore everything that Rosemary Barton has to say and frankly ignore what the CBC is saying because they don't have the best interest in the party in mind. It's not like she's advising conservatives because she wants them to win. No, she, she hates conservatives. She always emphasizes the negative aspects of conservatives. She jumps to fact check conservatives while brushing over, you know, liberal talking points and allowing liberals to push lies. She, she's not a reliable person and not a reliable reporter. And so again, conservatives should completely ignore what she has to say. Okay, final fake news this is over at the Toronto Star. It says, here's why a Stephen Harper loyalist regrets the tough on crime politics he once practiced. This story is about Benjamin Perrin, who was once the prime minister's lawyer. Prime Minister Stephen Harper's lawyer in the Conservative government. So surprise, surprise, he has a new book that came out that he's trying to push called Overdose, Heartbreak and Hope in Canada's Opioid Crisis, where he, surprise, surprise, rails against conservatives and says he's had a total change of heart, which is why the Toronto Star is plugging this piece. He's talking about the safe injection sites or the basically the location where the Canadian government taxpayers fund heroin needles going out to addicts because instead of actually trying to deal with the problem and treat them and stop the use, uh, instead we resort to just handing out needles and making sure that, hey, if they're going to use drugs, they might as well do it safely. Um, so Benjamin Perrin used to sort of rail against these kind of policies, used to emphasize more on, you know, being tough on crime and to stop the needles from getting on the street in the first place. Uh, but now he's written a book and he wants to get love from the mainstream media. He's turning on his former position. You know, the best way, the easiest way for a conservative to get love in the media is to have a change of heart and rail against conservatives. That, that's been proven time and time again. Just look at Michael Corrin, who used to be a sort of draconian social conservative pushing, you know, 
the, the kind of furthest right positions that most conservatives just really never agreed with. Um, and then he has a total change of heart. And now he gets to rail against conservatives saying, I used to do this. I used to believe in this. And now I've seen the light and I'm here to expose how evil conservatives are and, and, and were, e even though his former positions weren't really truly rooted in conservatism. So again, the Toronto Star just loves conservatives who are willing to bash other conservatives, which is why it's fake news. And there's another element of this story that is also fake news. So Benjamin Perrin was involved in the Mike Duffy trial, and this is the way that it was characterized in this Toronto Star piece. It says, he did eventually, however, go on to question some of what he experienced during his time in government, perhaps most notably as a witness during the Mike Duffy trial, Perrin parted ways with the line of his former colleagues in the Prime Minister's office, testifying that Harper had been aware of the controversial $90,000 payoff to Duffy. The PMO did not fare well in the ultimate verdict, with the judge dismissing all charges and slamming the Harper operatives for mind-boggling and shocking tactics. Well, this is not true. This is not a representative. This is not an accurate representative of what happened. And Howard Anglin, who was also once uh, in the prime minister's office, he was the uh, deputy. He was a deputy chief of staff to the prime minister. He says this. Uh, this can't go uncorrected. Quote: Perrin parted ways with the, with the line of his former colleagues in the prime minister's office, testifying that Harper had been aware of the controversial ninety thousand dollar payoff to Duffy. Anglin notes that Perrin was acting as a lawyer in the PMO when he negotiated the infamous payment to Duffy, according to his own testimony. He never told the prime minister about the negotiation and never sought the PM's approval for the payment. What he testified is that he interpreted, and it turned out he misinterpreted, an email from his superior as meaning the PM had approved the payment. Contrary to what the article says, he did not testify that the PM knew about the payment or the details of the payment scheme. So, you know, that's a pretty minor detail and it is kind of insider baseball, but the idea that he's saying that he testified that the prime minister was lying, when in fact he didn't testify that the prime minister was lying, he testified that it was his understanding from an email that he interpreted that it meant that Harper must have known about this payment, but really he had just misinterpreted what the email was saying. So, you know, never, never trust the mainstream media. They're always going to try to make conservatives look bad. They're always going to try to hype up um, every mistake and twist it and make it seem a lot worse than it actually is. And they're going to find any conservative that they can who's willing to bash other conservatives because that's all they care about and that's what they want to see. They hate conservatives or anti-conservative. And so they love to, you know, praise people like this who are willing to turn on conservatism and say that they had a change of heart and now they've seen the light. All right, I am going to leave it at that. Thank you so much for tuning in and we will be back again next week.